Hello, boils and ghouls, and welcome back to another issue of Crypt Speakers, a Tales from the Crypt podcast. This is your co-host, Jay Tyler. And this is Sussie Correa. And thank you for coming back for episode two here. We And you know what? It's that time of year when we have a Christmas episode that's more than likely coming out after Christmas. <laughs> uh, we are recording this, as we are recording this, it is a couple days from Christmas. But we're uh, planning on banking up some episodes uh, for personal life reasons that are going on over here uh the Tyler household. So this won't be coming out for a while, so it'll be in January when you're hearing this Christmas episode. Um Sassy, what 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 are some of your fond things that you enjoy about Christmas? Hmm. I guess I would have to say um uh, new um traditions that I have started. Sure. Uh so for example, uh my spouse and I uh like to have Chinese food on Christmas Day. Uh I usually like to go for dim sum, but this year can't really do that. Uh right. with COVID. Uh but I do I do plan on um somehow acquiring some some good Chinese food. So it's like stuff like that. Maybe watch a movie and then go eat some Chinese food. New tra- new traditions that we have started. That's great. No, that's fantastic. Um, we are similarly, you know, um, I, I, our Christmas was a big deal in my family growing up. Um, but we, you know, we, um, we have a two year old now. We have another baby on the way. And so just trying to figure out like the, you know, way that we do Christmas as a family now is, is definitely a lot of fun to figure out how that works all, all that works out. Um, so. Jumping into our episode, uh, this is our first episode directed by Robert Zemeckis. We kind of talked about that a little bit last week. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot to go down with uh, Robert Zemeckis's bio. You know, he's one of the most influential directors of the 80s and 90s. Uh, at this point, best known for making um, Back to the Future, Romancing the Stone, Who Friend Roger Rabbit. This is this episode is the first thing that has his name as on and as a director after Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out. And then later this year is when um, Back to the Future Part 2 will be coming out. So this is right in between those two films. This is really in the height of his popularity or right about when he's going to get really, really big. Right. So this is, yeah. So like, you know, he wins his Oscar. I think Forrest Gump comes out in 94. That's when he wins both. I believe he wins best director and best picture that year. So this is sort of, he is, he is in the height of being the next Spielberg at this point. Like he, he, and he is, mm-hmm. you know, really riding high, came out with these really genre defining movies, really pushing the envelope. And that's really what, you know, the, history of Robert Zemeckis's career is, is he is a guy who constantly is viewing film through technological advancement. So when you think of things like the special effects in Back to the Future movies, the real life with animation tricks that they did with Roger Rabbit, um, all the usage of like modified historical footage in Forrest Gump, like all these different things, like he's just, he's a real, um, savvy technical director and then that bleeds into as you kind of alluded to last time things like polar like his his weird motion capture cgi trilogy which is a less uh, you know successful experiment 
long term, but it's still him doing the same kind of thing of constantly playing with things. Um, For a while, he was saying that that's the only type of movies he was ever going to make. Right. And then at some point, people said, you need to stop making these movies. (laughs) Please, no more. Yeah, we, we, we've had enough of this, Bob. Uh, I do want to go back a little bit real quick on just who framed Roger Rabbit because I, yeah. I actually didn't remember that he had directed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that movie definitely, to watch it as a kid, was very scary. So I can definitely see that influence of oh, yeah. you know him being a fan of horror within that movie. I mean, it it was scary. And that Ma- that last uh, death at the end in in Who Framed Roger Rabbit probably scarred mm-hmm. me for for years uh, in my childhood. So I I just I can definitely see his uh, sort of like interest in the horror genre right there. He he's a guy. Who, so my my full disclosure, my Twitter icon is a picture of Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom changing into his tune form. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I'm in the exact same wheelhouse as, as you of just that movie. A, me loving that movie top to bottom, and B, like yeah, you kind of see on the edges, like that movie has some legitimately scary parts in it, and like some like nasty scary parts. Like yeah, like the way that the dip is depicted, the that whole transformation sequence, like. I think you see hints of it there because Zemeckis is never, well, I guess, so he made two films that you could sort of consider horror movies. Um, one, a horror comedy, uh, Death Becomes Her. Mm-hmm. And then he also made, um, What Lies Beneath, which is a more straightforward, like, that's more of like a Hitchcock pastiche, you know, sort of like yeah, I actually, psychological thriller. I was working at a movie theater when that came out and that movie freaked out one of my friends so much. <laughs> it was it, it was ridiculous. And I I guess I just I didn't realize that he had directed that. It it is uh for a I don't know, mid 2000s popcorn thriller it's actually really good mm-hmm. it's and, and the craziest thing uh, uh about that movie is that so uh when so that movie and castaway came out the same year and they had to stop filming castaway at one point because tom hanks has to lose a bunch of weight and so they stopped making that movie for like six to eight months. I can't remember how long it was. Oh, so he went and made that movie in between. He made, yeah, he made that movie in between. Like, well, while he's waiting for Tom Hanks to lose all the weight, <laughs> he made uh, What Lies Beneath. So that's why those two movies came out the same year. That's um, interesting. So that was yeah. um, his equivalent of Much Ado About Nothing to Joss right. Whedon's Avengers. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very similar. Um, so, uh, the other person I kind of wanted to highlight as far as like creative names on this go is Fred Decker, who's a really interesting guy. So Fred Decker is a guy who, you know, we talked last week about how a lot of people who do the directing on these, uh, Tales from the Crypt episodes don't really come from like a horror pedigree. Like you were saying, like you can see like Mm -hmm. touches in Robert Zemeckis' career of like, oh, this guy clearly understands like the keystones of making horror, but that's just never been his main avenue of filmmaking. Um, Fred Decker is a guy who wrote uh, for the first and second House movie. I don't know if you've ever seen those. They're really uh, pretty gnarly 80s horror movies. 
He wrote and directed Night of the Creeps. Um, and most importantly, he co-wrote Monster Squad with Shane Black. Mm-hmm. Um, Monster Squad, a film that I love, despite it having some truly <laughs> awful um, homophobic slurs in it. Like the mm-hmm. opening 15 minutes of that movie are rough. But once you get past that, it's, it's a delightful little um, horror comedy, you know, for aimed at teens. Um, so yeah, so he's a guy, he's a hot horror writer at this point. He's kind of coming in to do this script, um, which is based off of a Tales from the Crypt story from the comics. In fact, this, we didn't talk about this last week. So in 1972, there's a British anthology film based on Tales from the Crypt. And this story is also adapted for that film. So there are actually two versions of this that have been made. Hmm. Um, and so he writes, he writes this particular adaptation. I watched that one. Um, other than a couple things that I, that the very end, I much prefer this version of this version that they made of it. Interesting. Um, did I completely blank out and, and you already mentioned Robocop 3? I did not mention Robocop 3. So that, 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 so that's the, that is the weird part about Fred Decker's career is that he's sort of this up-and-coming screenwriter he's buddies with shane black who's a huge name in like late 80s early 90s screenwriting i'm talking about another guy who loves christmas um and so he's kind of on the rise and then he's assigned to write and direct robocop 3 robocop 3 famously an awful movie that (laughs) you know really fundamentally misses the point of the first two robocops i mean robocop 2 not a great movie. Ceci, you know I am obsessed with the first RoboCop, a movie I truly love, uh, think is a stone-cold masterpiece. Um, both those sequels fail to live up to the promise of that mm-hmm. first movie. It's basically a movie that doesn't need a sequel. It's a perfectly contained story that doesn't really ask to be continued after it's over. Um, but of course it was successful and like was very toyetic, so they had to keep trying. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, so after that, um, Fred Decker, like his career is summarily ended at that point. He has recently come back and done some more co-writing. He, so he did a lot of ghost writing mm-hmm. for several years of kind of like, you know, touching up scripts, but not getting like a whole lot of like main title credits. And like in the last three to five years, he's come back and like gotten co-writing credits with Shane Black again mm-hmm. as Shane Black's kind of had his career revitalization. Interesting. Fred Decker has, has sort of, um, he's brought his buddy back up with him. So that's a sweet story. Um, last thing I'm going to say, and before we get into this episode proper, I promise. And I don't know if you know this. So the woman who plays the lead in the story, Mary Ellen Trainer, at the time when this episode was made, was Robert Zemeckis' real-life wife. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, read into that what you will as we get into what <laughs> happens in this episode. But I thought that was an interesting... Mm-hmm. They later divorced in 2000, um, the same year he makes um, What Lies Beneath. Again, read into that what you will. Um, yeah. But, uh, the, yeah, at this point he's married to her, um, and that's really all I have She's to say really about good. That. She is really good. I, I think we'll get into that, but I think she is pitch perfect for what this story is asking of her. Um, so getting into the episode finally, uh, we open on the Crypt Keeper wearing an awful Santa mask, <laughs> like truly unsettling. Um, 
the Crypt Keeper's mouth doesn't move a whole lot, even when he's he's not like wearing a creepy mask. But like having this additional layer, like there's something really unnerving about seeing skin on the Crypt Keeper, um, and just his eyes poking out of this like plastic latex Santa mask. Uh, I don't I don't know if that gave you that that may have been the most uh, unsettling shot in this entire episode. It actually reminded me of this uh, movie that I love. It's a terrible movie called uh, Thanks Killing. And uh-huh. uh, it's it truly is a Thanksgiving horror movie. Um, not like that Thanksgiving movie that had been promised to us as part of the Grindhouse trailers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember back then. Uh, this yeah. one truly is a Thanksgiving um, horror movie about a killer turkey. And at some point, the killer turkey uh, skins a man alive and then wears his face. And this sounds horrible, but the movie is, you know, very low-budget B-movie, so it actually looks quite silly uh, that here's this fake puppet killer turkey wearing a sort of, like, someone else's face as a mask. Mm -hmm. Uh and that's literally what it looked like. It absolutely looked like this, the, it right here in this scene where you see the Crypt Keeper wearing the Santa, uh, Santa Claus skin. It looks right, like, that's it what it looks like. Exactly it looks like he skinned like Santa Claus and put on Santa Claus' face. I don't think that's supposed to be the implication. Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, it looks like he has skinned Santa Claus and yeah. put his face on John Travolta style and yep. is just staring out at us. Yeah, so it reminded me of that movie. Yeah. Well, okay. Now Another I wonder if that's where they got it from. Maybe entirely possible. <laughs> um, so uh, going into the episode itself, um, we get an opening shot of a snow-covered well as uh, Nat Cole's version of the Christmas song plays. And we get the trademark Zemeckis long, you know, sort of panning shot of kind of setting the scene as this Christmas song is playing. Um, and then we eventually um, get to the fireplace where uh, Mary Ellen Trainer, playing Elizabeth takes the poker off the fire um, and in short order, like within a minute, maybe two minutes of this episode, she's killed her husband with the fire poker, not jabbing him, but like full on downward swinging into his forehead. and. Uh, a pretty gnarly, like definitely the gnarliest kill we've seen on this show yet. I mean, it's episode two. I'm sure we're we're in to see. I'm sh- I'm sure we're much. in for more, but like, <laughs> I, there's something about the uh, aggression of this downswing onto her very rude husband, uh, just punctuating. Like that's just that's where we're starting. Like we're not going to give yeah. you much context. We're just going to show you this guy's kind of a jerk, and his wife's had enough of it, and she has killed him. And of course, spits out "Merry Christmas, you son of a bitch," which was great. Yeah, this. Yeah, and then we establish that this is Christmas Eve, and she has just had enough, and she is taking this guy out. Um, but this is interrupted when uh, her daughter comes down and wants to see Santa, and she's begging to be able to stay up to get to see Santa, um, and. We get our first, so this whole episode is Elizabeth having to juggle 
all these different circumstances, mostly of her own doing, and having to, like, keep her daughter from seeing her dead, we learned her dead stepfather, like, seeing, like, that is, like, the step one of, like, okay, trying to keep the daughter in her bedroom so that she's not going to see any of the gruesome things that are going to be going on, um, and it's only going to escalate from there. There was a great line at that point uh, where she says, what do you want for Christmas, Mommy? And then mm-hmm. she says, I already got it. I yeah. already got it. And it is so well, campy, but it actually mm-hmm. works for me in this episode as opposed to um, the previous episode where it was just very, very campy. Mm-hmm. And it just it didn't land for some reason here it was really landing for me uh and just like really working yeah i have a theory about that i think part of it is that trainer is doing this really interesting she's really good at shifting her tone really quickly and like 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 her you know merry christmas you son of a bitch like and then when her daughter shows up she immediately turns into like mommy Mm -hmm. voice and like she's like doing all this like you know almost like code switching of like constantly like changing her tone changing her timber and so but then when she says that when she says i already got it like that sinister side of her is coming out and so you kind of get that tingle of like that's her true voice like what she's saying there is like that's her real moment and and that's sort of coming through um so Elizabeth goes downstairs. She calls. We figure out that she's uh, killed her husband partially because he's a jerk, but also because she wants to get the money from his will to run off with this other guy that she's been seeing who's based on his uh, phone message might be not necessarily <laughs> Leave your as committed to her. And your name. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> Leave your name and measurements after the tone. Uh, this is, you know, all the information we get about this guy is his phone message. And it's it, more enough to paint a picture of like, I don't know if this is the guy you want to be killing your husband for. Well, and it also begs the question, how many times has she done something like this already? Because sure. clearly this other guy is probably going to meet a similar fate. Right, right. You know, th- this person is not the husband or the father of her child. So who knows? She's already gone through all of this before. She seems to be fairly practiced in what she's yeah. doing, which she definitely knows what she's doing. Um, so uh, after the phone call, she goes to. Did you want to say something? Oh yeah, I was gonna say, uh, it. She. It seems like she kind of knows what she's doing, but she also doesn't. Uh, oh yeah, because I'm definitely gonna criticize some of the things that she's some of her choices here. Very questionable, but uh, I'll let you go ahead. No, you're good. Uh, so she she drags Joseph out into the body. I will say this is one thing I don't because I initially because the well outside is so highlighted. I thought her initial plan was to drag Joseph outside and dump him down the yeah. well. That does not seem to be her plan. Her plan seems to be just to like get him out into the snow, which... and the snow will just cover him. Yeah, the snow will just cover him up, and then we like oh, he just disappeared. Don't know what happened to him. Uh. Um, when she, as she's dragging him out, uh, we don't get exposition on the TV, but we do get exposition on the radio. And we learn that a, uh, mad killer is out on the loose, killing people while wearing a Santa outfit, um, targeting women. I don't know if you noticed that they say 
on the radio um, that this is an all points bulletin for uh, they they say it's for Pleasantville, which I thought was funny. Like that that's a little uh, like you know like any town USA like you know yeah. quiet little area. But the other thing they say is that there's an all points bulletin for Gaines County, which is uh, almost assuredly a reference to Bill Gaines, who is the original publisher of Tales from the mm, Interesting. So I thought that, that that was a fun little nod from uh, Decker there put that in um as she's dragging i really like this line as she's dragging him out um she's, she's just criticizing that you know he's so heavy yeah he's uh, he, got, he was out of shape and like i love the line if you'd gone to the gym once in a while it wouldn't have killed you which i thought was really <laughs> funny yeah um, and, and there i was thinking well Really, you're gonna drag him? I know it's snowing and the snow might cover the tracks, but still, it doesn't seem like the best thing to do. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't fully get. Again, like, uh, later on, she kind of gets an out for a plan of how to like get the heat off of herself, but just like he's got this puncture wound in his head. He's got a. She puts a bag over his head, I guess, to separate <laughs> him just in case he's not quite dead, which. Turns out he's not yet, uh, but I like and then like it's one of those things where like was her plan to call the police and be like something happened to my husband and then been like, um, did you kill your husband? I don't know like what what her her plan, plan was. is what other than like if he was supposed to listen. Like, I did like that she put a bow on him though. Yes, he was wrapped up like a Christmas present. Yeah, it's a nice touch. As as she dragged him out into. The snow. We do get a little scare here of Joseph coming back to life, trying to kill Elizabeth, but he doesn't quite have it in him to finish it. Uh, and I think at this point he's I don't, he doesn't come back again. He he's at this point. Yeah, he did pretty clearly dead. Yeah, he she finishes him off. Um, and if she didn't hear, she definitely does later. Uh, and as Elizabeth's trying to get back into the house after this uh, little scare. The serial killer Santa comes out um, with gnarly teeth and some of the worst ADR I've ever seen in anything. I don't know if you noticed that any noises he was making was just incomprehensible, like, grunts and mutterings that yeah. did not seem like they were in the same space as her. Yeah, I do wonder if it was because of those awful prosthetic teeth this this teeth right he has one line later in the episode which which is clearly like spoken in the room but yeah i'm wondering if all that had to be added later because the teeth like just completely muffled whatever he else he was trying to do um but he's very scary yeah he seems uh, very intimidating uh they have a pretty uh serious kerfuffle and then she gets in and the only way she's able to get away from him is by axing santa in the arm um, and so she goes to call the police, but of course she can't call the police because they would also find the dead body of her husband, which again, I'm not sure what her plan is here, but they yeah. can't come now that, because her husband. That was my first reaction is like, why is she hesitating? Like that, this is the perfect alibi. Right. Well, and she'll get to, she'll realize that later on. But yes, at this point she's like, well, I, like if I call the because I don't think she knows that they know that there's a wild serial killer out there. So there might be more questions if somebody were to come out. Um, so she calls the police. She's on the phone with them and then hangs up when she realizes that she can't explain her dead husband. Um, and then they presumably call her back. And as they're calling her back, Santa breaks in through a window 
uh, and tries to get at her again. Well, they said they're calling because they're calling everybody, not just that they're calling her right. back. Yeah, also, eventually she fi- I do think that's interesting. I don't know when uh, 911 started uh, maybe like either like actually checking up on people, but I I feel like I have read that if you call 911, you say you need help, but you can't say where you are. Like they have ways of locating you. Mm -hmm. They have ways of sending someone over to do a welfare check. Right. Right. Yeah. If, if, if you call and, like, are on the line long enough to, like, that they can trace the call, they can figure out, like, or just look at the number. Like, if it's a landline especially. Yeah. They can look at the number that called them and figure out where you're at. Which yeah. I've, I've never fully understood why 911 people ask you where your location is, other than, like, if it just saves them time not having to look it up. Um, with cell phones, I can see it being a little bit harder. Um, anyway, so Sam busts in again. She struggles, and then this time conks him on the head with the axe. Not, like, with the blade in, but just kind of with the brunt of it, just to knock him out. Um, and, yeah, this is when she's informed that a deputy's on the way to check in on her. And this, at this point, she realizes that the Santa axe murderer is the perfect cover for Joseph's murder. Um, but she'll have to sell it, so she takes the axe and is going to go, like, basically, like, axe his head in half. So that it'll look like Santa killed him and not forensically. It's one of the things like, this is clearly not an axe murder. This is a fire poker murder, Mm -hmm. um, which just screams domestic dispute. So she goes out to whack him with the axe, um, putting any doubt that Joseph is fully dead to rest. Um, But she also knows Santa's out there and... He's probably not actually dead. She doesn't know how long he's going to be unconscious. So there's this tension of like, is he going to pop out again? Like it's, it's really well crafted. The tension in this moment, it's, it's played a little goofily, but I think it works in terms of like, is he going to come back around? Where is he? Is he still knocked out? Like you just don't know what his circumstances because you don't see him throughout this whole sequence. You just see her dealing with Joseph. Uh, so there's a bit of business. Elizabeth drops her keys. She has to fumble for her keys. Um, meanwhile, we cut back to uh, the little girl. I think her name's Claire. Um, and she hears a racket and she assumes it's the real Santa. Because remember, she was real keen mm-hmm. on meeting Santa. Um, so uh, she, Elizabeth goes inside and is calling the police. Basically, And this is, I think, one of the, like like kind of going back to what I was saying about like the code switching and like the different tones that trainer is using for this character. She's calling the police to report that Santa killed her husband. And as she's having the call, she suddenly realizes, I don't know if Santa's actually dead. She runs over there and sees him that sees that he's not dead, that he he's gotten up and she doesn't know where he is. And her practice panic transitions into real panic. And you can tell the difference between the two. It, it the subtlety yeah. of her acting allows you to know when she's gone from pretending to be scared to actually being mm-hmm. scared, uh, which I thought was really well done. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a really cool moment. Um, and then she realizes there's a gun in the house, uh, which this did we already go? Did we already um, 
past the moment where she loses her keys to the house because I found that a little confusing. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of skipped over it because I also found it a bit confusing. I think it's largely, so I think it's, so I think she had locked the door. So I think the whole process is that she locks the door because of Santa. Her house keys are on the table. So she, so when she goes out to kill Joseph, the door had shut on her. And so she has to fumble his keys out of his pocket. And then just, I think, to like ratchet up tension and to give you more time to think Santa's going to get to her. She drops her keys. They go under the stairs. So she has her each under the stairs. It's just a lot of business to keep but her outside for longer. But then she opens the door anyway without the key. Somehow. Does she? I, th- I thought she still had to use the key. I, I don't remember specifically if she had to use the key. But, like, the the moment when she went to think that she needs those keys to get back in the house. Because yeah. she had initially propped the door open and then, like through axing it had like been rumbled and like or the wind rumbled it and it closed so it it's all basically just an excuse to keep her outside for longer which you know means that santa could get her at any moment it's all just sort of ratcheting up that danger that she has to get back in the house it's not safe outside she has to get back into the house i think it's the general idea Elizabeth realizes that Santa is no longer knocked out. She freaks out, and but she also realizes that Joseph has a gun in a closet. So she runs upstairs to go to the closet. Um, and then in the most Looney Tunes moment of this thing, she shuts the closet behind her and the doorknob pops out. And she suddenly is trapped in this closet because the doorknob's fallen off. Um, and as this is all happening, she there her closet has a window in it, which I thought was an interesting... Uh, closets don't typically have windows in them, but she has a window in her closet. She looks out, she sees Santa climbing up the side of the um, building. Like, like Santa's starting to come in. And not only that, her daughter, oh, Carrie is her name. Her daughter, Carrie, actually has opened the window, is like actively trying to help Santa get in. Because, of course, she thinks it's the real mm-hmm. Santa. And so Elizabeth is just watching all of this as Santa is like climbing up and trying to get into the window and all this. And this sort of gets into our big crescendo of her panicking, trying to break out of the the closet, finally being able to bust out. But by the time she's busted out, it's too late. And what I think is interesting right there is that she could have um, tried to break the window because the ladder was right there. She could have easily just like knocked over the ladder and then that you know would have could... hopefully given her a little bit more time to get out and get her kid. Um... You know what she could have also done, Sessie? Grab the gun! <laughs> this literally breaks the, the Chekhov's gun rule of, like, we're introduced to the fact that there is a gun in the house. Yes. And the gun does not factor into the finale of this episode. Yeah, the, like, the other thing that I was thinking that she could have done, but also I don't know a lot about guns, is, like, she could have tried to shoot a whole through the door to try to right. open it. She could have shot a hole through the door. She could have shot a hole through Santa. Like, there's all these different things yeah. that, that, that like, she has all these options available to her. Um, and, and, you know, you could chalk it up to, like, there's the adrenaline and the panic of the moment of, real, of like, realizing everything that's happening kind of gets to her. And, she's, and like, all, like, her adrenaline is just pumping and she's just like, I need to bust this door down. And she does that. Um... But in the end, it's all for naught as Santa 
is coming up the stairs. He mumbles his one line, naughty or nice. And we cut to black to the screams of Elizabeth freaking out. Um, and then we come back to the Crypt Keeper, who goes out of his way to assure us, the little girl is going to be fine. Which, I, I like that even by the standards of Tales from the Crypt, they're like, no, no, no. This little girl is not going to be axe murdered. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, this is not Black Mirror. Right, exactly. We're not going to go quite that far. Um, but of course, the way he breaks this news to us is by saying that Santa, this Santa only likes older women. In pieces, that is. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, so, I don't know. Like, I, I, here's, here, he, we'll get into our, our, our final thoughts. Uh, and, you know, reminder of our rating scale. Is this one a keeper? A thinker? A keeper? A, you know, great episode that you think is a great introduction to the series or is like one like hey if you want to get into Tales of Crypt here's one you should watch a thinker one you have to kind of like mm, I, you know I, I, I'm so so on that one or a stinker one you think is, is best left forgotten um, and, and I can go first I I think um, Mary Ellen Trainer is so good in this episode and and it really like it's it's you know ninety percent on her to to keep the energy and to kind of keep up the uh, tension of this whole moment. I think she nails it. Um, but <laughs> the final like three minutes for this episode really don't work for me because I think it's just it we it's one of those things where like I think and it is partially because of the expectations that the episode have set up up to this point. That I think it's a really, up to that point, I think a really expertly plotted of like, here are all the pieces we're setting up in the first five minutes, and all those dominoes are going to fall now, and you're going to kind of see how these things are all connected. From the point that she goes to get the gun to the end of it, I feel like a lot of that um, meticulousness is lost. Like you were saying, like, there's multiple other ways she could have gotten out of the closet. She doesn't use the gun. The fact that deputies are on their way is never addressed again. Like, there's just all these plot threads that are dropped at the final moment. Um, it's almost so like they me, ran I, out of time again. Yeah, I don't know if it's just a timing thing or what. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. Because, like, because at this time HBO is primarily movies, I think people are more like, like I think it's generally like, this is generally a 30-minute show but you're kind of allowed like sort of a flexible time frame mm -hmm. within that similar to how like Netflix shows are now that it's not a hard and fast. You got to get out by 24 minutes. I don't know for a fact, like what the reasoning for that was, but yeah, like the, the final act of this episode bumps what would otherwise really be a keeper for me down to a thinker. It's one of those things where it's like, I enjoy so much of it. I think it's central performance is so good. Um, but the, the, in, the ending is just enough of a, wait, what? That I I think that just knocks it down just slightly into that thinker category for me. See, for me, I would say it's more of a keeper. I, I mean, I didn't, like, love it. But mm -hmm. in comparison to the first episode, this one I felt was much better. I actually love the style of the film. Like, 
right off the bat, I didn't feel any of the cheesiness from the first episode with the very extreme angles and the very dramatic lighting. This very much felt like a holiday movie that just That's happens to be. Yeah, it, it was a great holiday movie that just happened to be a horror movie. And I, 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 so from that perspective, I thought that it was very well made. It felt like a completely different thing than what we had seen in the previous episode, which mm-hmm. really got me thinking about this idea of like all of these different writers and directors coming together to make a TV show, but having relatively a lot of creative freedom to create something that's more in their style. And like you, I feel like you can see more of that a more traditional expert type of storytelling here with Robert Zemeckis where just like I said right off the bat this feels like a holiday movie but then right away takes you into that horror territory I don't know there was I think for me what works is that this seems to be a little bit more grounded Mm -hmm. um and I think that's what it, it makes it work a lot more for me. No, I I, I want to really co-sign what you just said. I I forgot to mention this earlier. There's a great shot. The I think it's the first time she calls the police, and she's having a slow realization of like, oh shit, I'm gonna have to explain why I have a dead husband in my front yard. Um, it's this long, like it's basically the shot where you can see from one end of the house to the other. And as she's having this conversation, you see Santa run across the background. It's just, yeah. it's these, it's these perfectly designed shots. And I think it's, I, I did not mind the stylized version in the Walter Hill episode as much as you did, but it, it is that thing of like, you instantly see like, oh, these are basically like, you know, 30 minute movies from these like really yes. well-known directors. Like this feels like a movie, like in miniature, like, it, you know, it has an act structure. It has you know yeah like the shot composition is really well done it's these like nice long shots it's that thing of like you know when we talk about like i you know you know me i love all the um marvel avengers movies and, and the mcu and whatnot but the more you watch those you more you can see how those things like other than the action sequences which are planned out to you know a fine point by committee like everything else is shot like a TV show, and this TV show was shot like a movie. Like it yeah. is really masterfully done, and like the yeah, like just the layout. You like you have a real sense of what the house is like. You have a real um, sense of the danger. Like it's all really well done. Yeah, yeah. I, I I still have those final act issues that I think keep it out of that zone for me. But that's a really good thing to point out that like you can tell that this is a movie directed by a guy who is right in the pocket. Yeah, like He knows exactly. exactly what he wants this thing to look like. Yeah, and one thing that I did notice about this, that I wonder, again, if they just had to rush the ending, is that this episode was 22 minutes long, um, whereas I believe the next episode we're going to watch was 28 minutes long. It's The next one we, we're watching uh, is the longest one we've had so far. Yeah, so it sure. seems, and I believe the first episode was also around 22 minutes. So, and that one also felt rushed. So I do wonder if they're just running out of time. And that's why that 
third act feels rushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, potentially. Uh, so, uh... I do agree, though, that the ending is a little o- underwhelming, and it, it suffers from a lot of what the first episode suffered, which is, okay, so that happened, so what? You know, what's right, the... yeah. Yeah, what's the sort of, like, moral of the story? What's the takeaway? What's the thing right, that's going to make me go, oh, yeah, I, you know, going to think about this for a while? And I feel like the ending is just kind of, it does fall flat. Um, but to me, the ending wasn't so bad that it, um, it knock it down for ruined the, the rest of the it. episode for me. I feel like I, I still sure. enjoyed it. Um, sure. so that's why I feel like it's a keeper so far. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great, uh, point. And, uh, I appreciate your opinion and you as a human being. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> So I'm going I'm 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 going to go into a brand new segment that I'm very excited about um that um we had talked about. So last week you had mentioned that the you thought that the character of Talbot would be really well played in a modern context by Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, and I, all right. And I was, and I was so taken by that that I thought what if we thought about like if we we have this exact same script and we are asked to cast the sort of primary characters in it with actors that are working today. And so, of course, we're going to be calling this Casting the Crypt. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know if you have, if you thought about this, if you remember that I talked to you about this. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to know if who you would cast for the role of uh, Elizabeth, the um, the murderous wife slash victim. So there's two actresses that come to mind for me, and one, mm-hmm. uh, immediately I thought of Elizabeth Moss. Okay. Interesting. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a good direction to go in. Yeah, I think if you watch her in Us, that's, mm-hmm. she has that in her, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. she she can do the, I don't know, more, like, quiet, but also kind of crazy really well like switch between the two um Mm -hmm. i don't know i immediately thought of her but uh i also thought about amanda peep uh maybe because i saw her recently in dirty john season two kind Mm -hmm. of rocking the same hairdo (laughs) and also also committing murder so maybe that's why she's fresh in my head uh, but it's yeah, those, those were the only the only two. I couldn't really think of anybody else for the other characters because the only other major characters are, you know, the Santa Claus and the little girl. Um, and the Santa Claus, I do have to say, he reminded me of an actor. I'm not sure if he's still working today. And I don't know his name, but he has just one of those faces. Mm. Um. He was he was in a lot of things in the eighties and the nineties. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of the times he would play like a butler or like just like a jerk. Okay. <laughs> I know or, it's or, like or, I'm not really giving you a lot to go on, but it's like it's one yeah. of those guys that like you see his face mm. and you know who he is, but you don't know his name. Right, he's one of those guys. 
So I, I, I have a couple casting the crypts that I want to do. Um, I really like your Elizabeth castings. The person I went to, and I, and I, she's not done a lot of horror work today, but I, I just think she has the, that, um, quick switch energy that I think that this role asked for was Elizabeth Banks, I think would be really good mm-hmm. in this role. And I could really lean into the comedy of it, like the, the dark humor of it. I think she'd be really good at that. I did think of, for the character of Joseph, the murder husband, I think Bob Odenkirk would be great in that role. It's, it's a short appearance, but I think he could give that, uh, shit heel energy that you need for that. Um, and for Santa, the, uh, the person I had thought of was, and this is slightly more obscure and is a bit more typecasty, but John Carroll Lynch, who's been in a couple seasons of American Horror Story. He's just a, he's just a big guy who, like, definitely, like, feels like he could be a uh, serial killer who dresses up in a Santa costume. Like he's, <laughs> he's kind of fallen into that role. He's um, if you remember uh, Norm Gunderson from the Fargo movie, he he's that guy. So he's just kind of, you know, this big brooding guy. And, and he's done a couple serial killers on different seasons of American horror story and done a really good job with that. So that would be my, I have never that. seen Fargo. And I have never seen any American Horror Story, which is yeah, just ridiculous. But um, here we are. Yeah, let's let's talk off mic, and I can kind of guide <laughs> you to which American Horror Stories to because like that's like talk about a show. I don't even know where I would even. start. Yeah. So yeah, it's um, there are a couple seasons I would tell you to avoid, uh, but uh, it's a show that I will watch every season of. Uh, because I am a stupid mark for Ryan Murphy style. Um, and I just, I just always eat it up. Even when I'm like, this is garbage, but I'll watch everything that he puts out, <laughs> um, which is a significant amount of material. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, with that said, with our, you know, hit new segment, casting the crypt done, um, that just leaves us with the, um, housekeeping thank you so much for listening um best thing you can do uh, is rate review us on your pod uh app of choice uh get the word out tell folks you know if you got some horror heads if you've got some uh crypt speakers of your own in your life let them know that we're out here going through the show you know get on get in early um i want to thank molly fancher for the our intro and outro mr n you can find them on bandcamp uh, and I, you can follow, oh, I meant to, forgot to say this last time. You can follow us on Twitter at Crip Speakers. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jay the Cake Thief. And I guess you can follow me on Twitter as well. It's Sussy Korea, C O R R E A. Oh, I guess I should spell my whole name because it's not that easy. Uh, C E C Y C O R R E A on Twitter. All right. And I think with that, we are going to. Head on out till until next time, kitties. Uh, have a good Krypton time. We need to figure out a sign off for this thing. <laughs> All right, bye.